Welcome to Time Travelling Team, the weekly podcast where we review every story of Doctor Who right from the very beginning. I'm Trisha. And I'm Paddy. Today we are going to be discussing the very important story of Doctor Who. Oh, sorry, no, I have to do it again. And I'm Paddy. Today we are going to be discussing a very important story of Doctor Who history, the Dalek invasion of Earth. We will be talking about the Doctor, the companions, the villains, and giving our thoughts on the story as a whole. We would also love to hear your thoughts on this story. To join in the discussion, you can check us out at Time Team, that's T-I-M-E-T-E-A-M-P, on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram, or you can email us at timetravellingteam at teamproductions.com. Now Paddy, why don't you give us a summary of today's story? Absolutely. Episode 1, World's End. A man in tattered clothing, wearing some sort of metal collar and helmet, approaches a river. He seems to be in a bit of a daze, and he tears off the metal collar as he wades into the river, intentionally drowning himself. The TARDIS materialises under a bridge mere moments after his body is carried downriver. Inside, the Doctor is fretting over the fact that the view screen is still not fully functional. The others come in, and after taking a look at the exterior settings, Susan announces that they are still on Earth, and the Doctor indicates that he is confident that they are not very far from London. Ian and Barbara excitedly go take a look outside for themselves. They notice how quiet it is, and the Doctor wonders what year it is, but it doesn't dampen the good mood of the others. Susan climbs up to take a look over a nearby wall, but falls and twists her ankle. Unfortunately, she dislodges some scaffolding on the way down that causes a section of the bridge to collapse on the TARDIS, blocking off the travellers' access to it. Ian and the Doctor are inspecting the debris, and Ian suggests looking for help, but the Doctor cautions against it, as their objective to uncover an old police box might arouse undue suspicion. Ian agrees and says that if he had the right tools, he could cut away the debris. He notices a warehouse nearby and says perhaps they could find some equipment there, but he says they should make sure they can get back into the ship before exploring any further. The Doctor agrees with his logic, as he has a feeling that they are nowhere near Ian and Barbara's time. He points out that since they arrived, they have not heard a single thing. They go back to the girls, but Susan can't go on her ankle. Ian suggests that he and the Doctor will go themselves, and Barbara will stay with Susan. She apologises for what happened, but the Doctor is still mad at her, and he and Ian set off for the warehouse. After they leave, Barbara voices her opinion that they are not in their own time due to the unnatural silence and a nearby poster prohibiting the dumping of bodies in the river. She goes to get more water to bathe Susan's ankle, but sees a body in the water. When she comes back, she discovers Susan's gone and a man there telling her to come with him quickly. He says that Susan is with a friend of his named Tyler, but before he can say any more, they hear the sound of gunfire at the distance and they both flee. At the warehouse, the Doctor and Ian discover it to be completely abandoned and dilapidated. As they explore further, they do not notice that someone is watching them. Ian notices Battersea Power Station in a similar state of decay, and the Doctor comes across a calendar dated 2164. As they explore further, they come across a dead body wearing the same helmet and collar as the one earlier. The Doctor thinks it is some sort of communication receiver device, but grows suspicious when they see a whip beside him. When they examine him further, they see a knife in his back and decide to go back to the others. They hear a noise outside and go and investigate, but Ian nearly falls through a broken doorway. After they leave, the figure that was observing them emerges from his hiding place. As they leave the warehouse, they see a flying saucer patrol overhead. Barbara rushes after the stranger, who leads her to Susan and Tyler, and they enter an underground tunnel. They arrive at a secret doorway, and the man who was observing the Doctor and Ian emerges from it. He tells them that he fought with a roboman in the warehouse, and that it appears that their safety is compromised. Tyler tells him that they can't leave yet as their colleague Dalton has gone to find Barbara and Susan's friends. The man, whose name is David, realises that they are talking about the two men he was watching. Before they can discuss the matter further, a wheelchair-bound man comes out to find out what's going on. 
His name is Dortmund, and he is another member of the underground group. Dortmund tells David to go and find the Doctor and Ian, and bring them back quickly so they can discuss some attack plans. Tyler takes the girls into the hideout, while Dortmund remains outside to keep watch. The Doctor and Ian arrive back at the TARDIS to find the girls missing. Ian is frustrated that they would do something so foolish, but the Doctor points out that they probably hid when they heard the gunfire. Ian says he wants to go away from here, but the Doctor asks him if he is curious to know what fate befell his home city, to which Ian replies that he isn't. They see the poster that Barbara saw earlier and theorise that maybe a plague befell the city. David arrives at the bridge, but hides when he sees a group of robo-men approaching. They approach the TARDIS from different directions, cutting off any chance of escape for the Doctor and Ian. The robo-men order them to stop, but they try making a run for it by diving into the river. However, they stop in shock when they see a Dalek emerging from the water. Episode 2. The Daleks The Dalek reprimands the robo-men for allowing the Doctor and Ian to get so near the river, and instructs them to bring the prisoners to Landing Area 1. The Doctor tries to bluff their way out of captivity, but the Dalek states that they have control over the Earth and that resistance is useless. The Doctor says that while humanity remains alive, there will always be resistance. At the underground hideout, the Resistance are listening to the Dalek propaganda broadcasts. Dortmund turns off the radio and goes over the attack plans. Tyler urges him to be cautious with his plans as they are fighting a superior enemy with limited numbers. However, Dortmund is adamant that they concede with the aid of a new bomb he has designed. David returns and informs him that the Doctor and Ian have been captured. Meanwhile, Barbara and Susan are fed and Susan's foot is seen to, but they are expected to help out in order to pay their way. The Doctor and Ian are brought into the landing zone and Ian asks how the Daleks could be here since they destroyed the Monscaro. The Doctor tells him that the, that event happened in the far future and that they are currently witnessing an event in the middle of Dalek history. Ian notices that these Daleks are different and the Doctor points out some sort of disc on their back which might indicate how they can move around the area without the use of static electricity. They are grouped in with a couple of other prisoners, one of whom is executed when he attempts to escape. At the hideout, preparations are continuing for the big attack. David and another resistance member named Jenny explain to Barbara and Susan that there are only a small number of Daleks on Earth and that the majority of their forces are made up of Robomen. He says that the helmets control the Robomen, but the process is unstable and usually ends up with the suicide of the Robomen. Jenny says that no one taken for processing has ever escaped. In the processing centre, the Daleks are observing the new prisoners and notice the Doctor seems to be sussing out the technology in the processing centre. This marks him as being of superior intelligence and someone that might be of use to them. Their new cellmate introduces himself as Craddock and said it is pointless to try and escape. Craddock says that about 10 years ago the Earth was bombarded by a meteor shower which unleashed a plague that ravaged the world. Once the plague died out, it left only small isolated communities alive which easily fell to the Dalek invasion force that came six months later. They turned some humans into Robomen and sent more to vast mining complexes, but Craddock says he has no idea what they are digging for. The Resistance are listening to more propaganda broadcasts, this time offering life in exchange for servitude. They ignore them and instead focus on planning for the assault. They can't decide on a plan of attack, but Barbara suggests disguising themselves as Robomen with captured helmets. They can infiltrate the Dalek base and deliver Dortmund's bomb without arising suspicion. Ian points out a strange transparent box inside the room. The Doctor thinks it, that it's a safety key that can only be used by Daleks in case one of them was ever accidentally locked inside. Using a spare magnet and magnifying glass that he and Craddock found, the Doctor manages to get the key out of the box. He manages to reverse the magnetic polarity on the cell door and the trio escape. 
However, the Daleks and a squad of Robomen are lying in wait and announce that the Doctor has passed their test. Ian and Craddock are put back into the cell and the Doctor is taken to be converted into a Roboman. The Resistance start their infiltration of the base, with some of them posing as prisoners. They are stopped for questioning, but the rest of the Resistance stage a diversionary attack. The Daleks order them inside the ship, and once they are inside, they begin to place their bombs. The Dalek commander puts the station on alert and orders all Daleks to their battle stations, except for the ones about to convert the Doctor, who lies helpless on a gurney. Episode 3. Day of Reckoning Tyler manages to rescue the Doctor while the rest of the Resistance free Ian and the other prisoners. Outside, all hell is breaking loose as the compound is filled with the sounds of gunfire, Dalek blasts and smoke from the bombs, which have not proven to be as effective as Dortmund had hoped. Several prisoners and members of the Resistance are killed during the raid. David tells Jenny to take Barbara and Susan back to the hideout, but Barbara refuses and goes after him. Ian makes his way down the ramp and sees Barbara, but he is forced back onto the ship when a squad of Daleks come to reinforce the compound. The Resistance scatters and retreats, with some being hunted down, but others managing to get away. Back at the hideout, the Resistance are discussing the raid and its overall failure. Tyler informs Dorfman that the bombs didn't work. Barbara asks him about Ian and the Doctor, but he says he got separated from the Doctor during their escape. Tyler says that London is not safe anymore, and he says he intends to leave, while picking up any survivors he encounters on the way. Barbara asks him to keep an eye out for their friends, including Susan, who went missing during the raid. Dorfman says that he intends to go to the Civic Transport Museum, another resistance base, so he can continue to refine his bombs. He also tells Barbara that there is a chance her friends could be there if they manage to escape. Back at the Dalek base, the Dalek commander orders a firebombing of London whilst he takes the saucer to the mining facilities in Bedfordshire. En route to the mines, Ian emerges from his hiding place and encounters Craddock, who has been turned into a Roboman. They struggle and Ian manages to knock off his helmet, which causes Craddock to flip out and crash into a bank of electronic circuits, killing him. Craddock had been escorting a prisoner who informs Ian of where the ship is going as he had deliberately snuck on board in order to find his missing brother in the mines. In the city, Susan and David do their best to avoid Dalek patrols. Susan offers to ask the doctor to take David with them so he can escape safely, but he refuses, saying he can't run away while his home is in trouble. Susan laments over the fact that she has never really known what it's like to call a place home. David tries to comfort her, but they hear a noise and hide. It is revealed to be a resistance member named Baker, carrying the doctor with him. Baker says he's going to try and escape to the coast, but is killed by the Daleks as he tries to make his way out of the city. Elsewhere, Barbara, Dortmund and Jenny avoid various Dalek patrols as they make their way to the museum. Once they are inside, Dortmund starts to work on the bomb, realising that the Daleks' outer casing, which, call, which they call Dalekanium, was too resistant to the bomb's effects. Barbara suggests that is what the Daleks are mining for, but Dortmund disagrees. Barbara and Dortmund lament over the fact that the Doctor is not with them, as he would be a great asset to them. He entrusts the notes for his formula to her, and says she should go and bring Jenny in from her guard duty, so they can all make for the mine. Once she goes, he gathers up his bombs, and goes to take on a nearby Dalek patrol. He is killed, but yet again, his bombs proves to be ineffective. Barbara and Jenny witness this, and then flee to safety. On the saucer, Ian and the prisoner, who is called Larry, are discussing the Daleks' reason for mining. Larry says his brother has a theory that they are trying to reach the Earth's core. The saucer lands and they sneak off it. Meanwhile, Susan is helping the Doctor back on his feet and repeats one of David's suggestions to go north. The Doctor says that their best option is to escape to the TARDIS, but Susan says that they can't get in without help. 
The doctor starts to act sassy, inferring to Susan that she trusts David's idea more than his. She retorts that he knows this time and an area better, but stops when she hears him return. He tells them that the Daleks are all over the city and asks the doctor what they should do, deferring to his seniority. The doctor, feeling flattered, suggests that they go north, much to Susan's happiness. They agree to wait a while to see if anyone else joins them. While they are waiting, a couple of Robermen place a firebomb nearby and start the timer on it. Episode 4. The End of Tomorrow The doctor hears the sound of the bomb ticking, but passes out due to exhaustion. Susan points out where the bomb is to David, and he attempts to defuse it. He uses the acid from one of his bombs to eat into the casing so he can remove the ignition switch. David suggests leaving the doctor behind while he and Susan find a route out of the city. Susan is reluctant to leave her grandfather, but David says that he will be safe there, as the Daleks think that the area will be on fire. Back at the transport museum, Barbara and Jenny are attempting to repair and refuel an old lorry. Jenny thinks it's pointless to resist as she doesn't think that they will get very far, but Barbara says they need to at least try and get out to carry on Dortmund's mission. They gather up their belongings and Dortmund's notes and make their way out of the museum. They are spotted by a Dalek as they are leaving, who radios ahead, and they encounter a squad of Daleks acting as a roadblock. Barbara ploughs through them with ease, but their happiness is short-lived as a saucer appears and shoots at the lorry. Barbara and Jenny manage to leap away just before the lorry explodes. At the mine, Ian and Larry avoid Dalek patrols as they attempt to locate Larry's brother. They witness prisoners hauling large pieces of mining equipment into the mine shafts. They are found by a man who assumes that they are escaped prisoners. He introduces himself as Wells and tries to cover for them by saying he took them from a work detail when a Roboman guard asks who they are. The Roboman attacks Wells, but Ian manages to knock him out after distracting him by telling him to request new orders. Wells tells them that they better hide somewhere as the Daleks will know when a Roboman is attacked due to his connection to the communication grid being severed. He tells them that he will meet them again after he meets a black marketeer named Ashton. Ian asks to meet him as well as he could help him get back to London. Wells informs Ian that London has been destroyed and then leaves, leaving Ian dumbfounded. David and Susan are making their way through the sewers when Susan spots a bullet cartridge on the ground. She shows it to David, saying maybe there are other humans hiding down here as well, but David is wary as he says that not all the surviving humans are on the same side. Suddenly a figure emerges and Susan shouts for David, but is relieved when the figure reveals himself to be Tyler. He says that he was keeping a lookout for scavengers, but the real danger in the sewer are the alligators, who escaped from London Zoo during the invasion. He agrees to help them retrieve the doctor, but tells Susan he has seen no sign of Ian or Barbara. He goes to scout ahead, and David tells Susan that Tyler finds it difficult to make friends due to the times that they live in, but says one day it will get better, and they can rebuild their world once the Daleks are gone. This idea seems to intrigue Susan, and David suggests that she could stay with them to help. Tyler calls them on and they make their way back to the doctor. As they are making their way up a shaft to the outside, the ladder that they are on breaks away from its moorings and Susan dangles from it. An alligator emerges from the water below, but Tyler shoots at it to drive it away. Together he and David help Susan back up to safety and then leads them on to the doctor. At the mine, Ian and Larry are trying to avoid some unseen creature that is pursuing them. They shelter in an old building, but encounter Ashton, who pulls a gun on them. Ian asks him to take him to London, but Ashton demands payment or else they can go back outside and take their chances with the creature, which he calls a slither. Wells comes in carrying a large quantity of jewellery in payment for some food and he vouches for Ian and Larry. Wells tells him that the slither is a creature belonging to the Daleks that is released at night to hunt down and eat escaping prisoners. They settle down to eat, but before they can finish, the slither breaks in and kills Ashton, 
whose gun proves useless against the mass of fangs and clawed tentacles. Ian and Larry run away, but stop when they come to a sheer drop into the valley below. They turn back, but the slitter approaches, trapping them against the ledge. Episode 5 The Waking Ally Larry falls from the cliff, but manages to grab onto the ledge of a nearby mining cart hanging from a cable relay. Ian jumps into the cart and pulls Larry to safety. The slitter jumps after them, but Ian manages to dislodge it with a rock, sending it plummeting to the ground. Before they can get out of it though, it starts to descend as the command centre has sent it down to collect debris from one of the mine shafts. Back in London, Tyler, David and Susan have retrieved the doctor, but are forced to re-enter the sewers when they are pursued by a pair of robomen. They attempt to ambush them, but Tyler's gun misfires and David is disarmed when attempting to help him. The doctor and Susan come to their aid and manage to incapacitate one of the robomen, while Tyler kills another as he retreats in order to prevent him from bringing reinforcements. He goes on to finish the other one, but the doctor stops him, saying that he only takes life when it's necessary. He then suggests that they make their way towards the mine. Barbara and Jenny seek shelter as a thunderstorm begins overhead. They come across an old hovel, but find that it is already occupied by two women. They apologise for the intrusion and offer to leave, but one of the women says that it's too dangerous as the surrounding areas are filled with feral dogs. The older woman reveals that they have left to their own devices because they provide clothes to the prison camp, for which they are also sometimes given food. Barbara and Jenny offer to share some of their food for shelter, to which they readily agree. As Barbara and Jenny set up the food, the old woman says something to the younger one, who then announces that she needs to deliver clothes to the prison and goes out into the storm. Later, as they are eating, the young woman returns carrying a large cache of food, but she has also brought a Dalek with her. The Dalek takes Ian and Jenny into custody and takes them back to the mine. In the mineshaft, the bucket continues its descent for nearly 20 minutes, and Ian notices the slow increase in temperature and air pressure. They jump from the cart after it stops moving, but Larry injures himself and Ian carries him to a hiding place. As they are resting, Ian looks around for signs of what the Daleks may be up to, but there are no indicators whatsoever. He goes back into cover when he hears approaching footsteps. They see it as a squad of robomen leading a working party that includes Wells, and realise that in order to avoid suspicion they need to join in. However, one of the robomen orders them to stop, and Larry is horrified to see that his brother Philip. Philip declares that they are not part of the work party, but Larry tries to reach out to him, but to no avail. Larry sacrifices himself to kill Philip, thereby saving Ian and the rest of the prisoners. The alarm starts to go off and they scatter. Out in the woods, Susan is cooking a meal when David sneaks up on her. The attraction between them has been growing and they kiss, but stop when they hear the doctor and Tyler are coming. As they are eating, the doctor tells them of his theory that the Daleks have no interest in enslaving the human race, but are more interested in something that is within the Earth's core. In the mine, Ian is hiding from the Dalek and Robomen patrols when he spots Barbara and Jenny being led in with another work party. Jenny seems to have given up hope, but Barbara says they need to keep trying and maybe they can control, find the control room to sabotage it, as that is what the doctor would do. Wells is also a member of the work party, and when he is sent to dispose of debris, Ian comes out of hiding to tell him to inform Barbara of his presence. Meanwhile, Barbara tries to use Dortmund's notes to bluff the Dalek guard by saying that she has in-depth knowledge of another uprising that is about to take place. The Dalek guard agrees to take her to the Dalek commander, which scuppers Ian's attempts to contact her. Wells tells him to hide somewhere, and he accidentally ends up in a room with Daleks in it. He hides in a nearby metal shell and waits for them to leave. In the command centre, the Dalek commander is informed that they have successfully mined towards the Earth's crust, and then he goes to the PA system to announce the actual objective of their invasion to the rest of the Dalek forces. 
They have been sent to Earth to remove its core and replace it with a gravitational drive capable of piloting the planet, essentially turning it into a mobile fortress. Now that they have nearly reached their objective, the only thing that remains is to blast through the crust and remove the core with the use of a penetrative explosive. Unfortunately, the metal shell that Ian is hiding in is the casing for the explosive, which is inserted into it, thereby trapping Ian inside as it is lowered towards the fissure in the crust. Episode 6 Flashpoint Ian pulls at various wires in the hope of disabling the device. He manages to sever a motor in it, which stops it going any further down towards the fissure. A squad of Robomen are dispatched to pull it back up to investigate the fault, but Ian manages to open a section of the shell and begins to climb down the rope coil. However, he is spotted by a Dalek guard who severs the rope, causing Ian to slide down the shaft towards the fissure. In the command centre, Barbara and Jenny are ushered in. Barbara tells Jenny to try and locate the main control panel once they are inside and do as much damage as they can. Once inside, they hear the Dalek commander order the extermination of all humans in the mines. They send instructions to the Robomen to start herding the work parties down to the lower levels. Barbara says to Jenny that if they can get to the panel where the orders are issued from, then maybe they can turn the Robomen on the Daleks. The Dalek commander demands to know what information Barbara has about the uprising, and she proceeds to make up a plot using various figures and events from history, including Hannibal and the Boston Tea Party. The Daleks start to panic and set a high alert throughout the mine, and Barbara uses the confusion as a chance to issue an order to the Robomen. However, she is stopped before she can finish and both she and Jenny are chained to the wall where they will most likely die when the complex is destroyed as a result of the explosion. The doctor and his group arrive at the mine and begin to scout the surrounding area. He tells Susan and David to skirt the edge of the mine to approach the command centre from the rear and knock out a radio transmitter on top of it. He and Tyler then make their way towards the command centre, disabling the external warning sensors as they go. Ian wakes up in the mineshaft and sees that he has landed in a doorway. He opens it and sees that it leads into the lower levels. He closes it again when he sees a squad of robomen lead a work detail carrying debris out. Once they are gone, he goes into the corridor and jams the doorway with some long pieces of timber that also extend into the mineshaft. The Daleks, unaware of this, send the repaired explosive device down into the mineshaft. Then they leave, with the Dalek commander saying that they will be picked up by the saucers when the bomb detonates in one hour's time. After they leave, the Doctor and Tyler enter the command centre and release Barbara and Jenny. Jenny informs the Doctor of the Daleks' plans. He is horrified and tells him of the consequences pulling the Earth out of its orbit can have on the rest of the solar system. He goes to the control bank to see if there is anything he can do to interfere with their plans and Barbara sees an image of David and Susan on a scanner. The Doctor tells him that if they are successful, then the Daleks could be immobilised. They hear a Dalek sentry approach having been alerted to interference in the communication relay and the others can only wait and watch in the hopes that the Doctor's theory about the radio transmitter is correct. The Dalek enters the command centre and aims its weapon at a defiant Doctor when it suddenly stops moving. The others check the screen and see that Susan and David have been successful. The Doctor says that it may only be a temporary solution and Barbara tells him about the command station for the Robomen. She and the Doctor mimic the Daleks' voices and order the Robomen to turn on the incapacitated Daleks. Their plan is successful as the Robomen and the prisoners destroy the Daleks and then escape from the mine. Ian emerges from a group of prisoners and happily reunites with the others. He tells him about his sabotage and Barbara says that the bomb is on a timer. From its position in the mine, the doctor tells them that it won't do the damage it was intended to, but the explosion will still most likely destroy the entire complex, so they flee. From their vantage point, they witness the complete destruction of the mine and all the Daleks within it.
Back in London, the resistance members help clear the debris from around the TARDIS, and Tyler contemplates what the future may hold. The Doctor points out that Big Ben is chiming again, and uses it to show that it is only the beginning of their rebuilding. He then notices Susan sitting down near the TARDIS, looking rather forlorn. He tells her that he has noticed that since they began their travels with Ian and Barbara, she seems to become very scattered and all over the place. He embraces her and awkwardly tells her that he needs to go check on the TARDIS. Ian is saying goodbye to the Resistance members and Barbara drags him away so that Susan can say goodbye to David in private. He begs her to stay with him and tells her that he loves her. Susan wants to stay, but she cannot choose between him and her grandfather, but she tells him that she also loves him. The Doctor is observing this on the view screen and makes her decision for her by locking her out of the TARDIS. He then addresses her, telling her that she will always remain his granddaughter, but it is now time for her to become a woman. He promises one day to come back, but until then she must live on in her own life and prove that his belief in her isn't misplaced. The TARDIS dematerializes and Susan takes David's hand, taking her first steps into her new future. The End So that's it for the recap of the story. We're now going to go over to Trish for some trivia notes. Over to you, Trish. Thanks. So, the Dalek invasion of Earth. The writer for this story is, unsurprisingly, Terry Nation. We discussed in our episode about the Daleks, how Terry invented the Daleks and is responsible for many of the stories across Who that feature them. However, Susan's departure was not written by Terry Nation, but was instead written by David Whitaker. This was his last story as story editor, and so he took that upon himself to write her exit part. This was directed by Richard Martin. We've also discussed Richard before, as this is not his first Doctor Who directing job, nor is it his first time directing a Dalek story. Richard was the director for episodes 3, 6, and 7 of the Daleks. Prior to this, he also directed the first episode of the two-parter Edge of Destruction. This will be his first complete story that he has directed, though it won't be his last. We'll see more of his work in The Web Planet and The Chase. The air date for this story was the 21st of November to the 26th of December, 1964. Nice St. Stephen's Day treat for people. (laughs) Yeah. While this is not the first story to have location filming that honour went to Reign of Terror, it is the first to have such extensive location filming. With the story based in London, the team had the ability to to use the local area for filming. They did most of their filming on Sunday mornings, when obviously it was very quiet. Mm. We do have another first in the story, something that will become a staple of Who right up to the current day. This is the first story that had location filming in a quarry. Now, was that quarry in Wales? That I don't know. All right. <laughs> I imagine not, since Doctor Who was filmed in London at this time. Oh, so. okay. You may have noticed that with the exception of the reprise from episode three, Hartnell isn't actually in episode four all that much. Mm-hmm. You kind of see the back of him at one point. This is because they filmed things a little bit out of order. And when they were filming the attack on the saucer ship, Hartnell actually got hurt. He was knocked out and he also hurt his spine. Because the person who was carrying him dropped him. And he hurt his spine. So he also hit his head. So he was not in episode four they use a body double for the little bits we do see of him but he wasn't in the episode and most of his lines were actually given to david was it his walking double that came in again was it i don't think it was the same one but it was a body double for him okay what i like about this though is 
when you look back into you know production of shows back in the 60s and stuff you often hear about how like it was very you know get it done get it done get yeah. it done and it was a bit sort of like labor intensive mm-hmm. you know he hurt his spine he'd hit his head i love the fact that they just gave him the wick off yeah and just said we'll write around you it's fine don't worry about it and like it, they wrote around it in such a way that it actually still works which i think is really good yeah i mean him randomly passing out seems a bit weird yeah but it's believable weird mm. This is the first story that introduced the Dalek phrase, exterminate. In the previous Dalek story, they had used exterminated to refer to someone being killed. Hmm. But this is the first time they actually use it in the way that we're com- we've come to know it now. As with the Daleks, this story was also adapted into a movie titled Daleks Invasion Earth 2150 AD. This would be the last story of Doctor Who that would be adapted in this way, likely because it didn't really perform very well. I think I've actually seen a small bit of it because the the scene where Dorman is like defiantly throwing bombs at the Daleks, I've seen a a coloured version of that. So yeah, I have seen a bit of that movie. I haven't seen all of it, just that small bit. And an interesting thing is that at the end of that movie, Susan doesn't leave. Ah. Mm. On to our guest cast for this story. So first off, as Tyler, we have Bernard K, or Key, not quite sure how he pronounces that. This is the first of four Doctor Who acting credits for Bernard. The other three are The Crusade, where he plays Saladin, The Faceless Ones, where he plays Inspector Crossland, and Colony in Space, where he plays Caldwell. Bernard also appears in the Big Finish story, Nice Thoughts. Outside of Who, Bernard acted extensively on stage and was in a lot of TV programs, including Emmerdale Farm, Casualty, Coronation Street, Jonathan Creek, Foyle's War, and guess, Zedkars. Yay, we're on the scoreboard. Yep. He also played a Bolshevik leader in the film Dr. Zhivago in 1965. Bernard passed away on Christmas Day in 2014. David Campbell is played by Peter Fraser. This is his only Doctor Who acting credit. Though I think it would be hard to explain if we saw him on screen again without Susan. Yeah. I know you. Who are you? (laughs) Where's my granddaughter? Fraser's other credits include episodes of No Hiding Place, Boyd QC, Ghost Squad, Sergeant Cork, The Plane Makers and Out of the Unknown. Jenny is played by Anne Davies. This is Anne's only Doctor Who acting credit. Though at one point it was thought that the character of Jenny would stay on to replace Susan. However, that idea was kind of shot down before Anne was ever hired and Anne herself wasn't considered to replace Susan. Hmm. Anne was married to actor Richard Briers, who was in Doctor Who and Torchwood, though he's probably best known for his role in The Good Life. And one of their daughters, Lucy, played Mary Bennett in the 1995 BBC adaptation of Pride and Prejudice, which in my opinion is the best adaptation of Pride and Prejudice. Anne's other acting credits include Poldark, The Bill, EastEnders, and Zedgars. Dortmund is played by Alan Judd. This is his only Doctor Who acting credit. His other acting credits include TV movies of Beauty and the Beast, The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, and Hamlet, along with many, many others. If you look up his IMDb page, he does a lot of TV movies, or he rather, he did a lot of TV movies. Alan passed away back in 1988. And I have one uh, guest appearance uh, trivia note. 
mm-hmm. if I can contribute. Uh, the person that plays Wells, uh, he's played by Nicholas Smith, who some people may recognize him from his role as Mr. Rumbold, the department store manager from Are You Being Served? But he also did star in Zed Cars as well, so that's why he's included in this discussion. <laughs> Zed Cars bingo. Yeah. So, to finish up, we have the important question. Why did Susan leave? According to Caroline Ford, essentially she was tired of the role because the producers wouldn't let her develop the character any further. Which sucks. Yeah. Particularly because you and I have discussed how much potential the character of Susan had and what we see coming in other companions down the line and how much development they get. Mm. That just sucks. However, this isn't the last time we'll see Susan. We do get to see her again in The Five Doctors and briefly in Dimensions in Time. And she has a very strong presence in Big Finish. I actually really want to get um, the Big Finish series on Susan during the Time War. Mm-hmm. I'm really curious as to what that will be about. So I think that is going to be my next Big Finish investment. Is that Susan's War or is it An Earthly Child? It's Susan's War. I think An Earthly Child is a different story. That's an Eighth Doctor story, I believe. Yeah, I, th- I think that was the one that came out for the 50th, or in the build-up to the 50th, I think. Yeah, I think Susan's War is a, is a different story as far as I'm aware. Cool. So we've gone through the story summary, we've discussed a little bit of trivia, and now it's on to the main event, the character discussion. The way this works is we will discuss the Doctor, the companions, and the villains. So, Paddy, why don't you start us off with the Doctor? So, first and foremost, if he had done nothing else for the entirety of this whole episode, his final speech to Susan would more than make up for it. Um, because, like, when you think of all like, the amazing moments from Who in terms of, like, the Doctor being, you know, powerful and getting across that, like, amazing sense of, like, just presence or his really sorrowful moments like you know the ones of like David Tennant in the rain or Tom saying goodbye to people Um, I think this is quite possibly the tenderest moment from any doctor we've ever seen in the show and the it's also sad because this is like the first time he has to admit defeat and let go of Susan but it's in, in a positive way so I, I I think that from in terms of like the softer side of the doctor this is Hartnell's best performance. Yeah, I would agree. I think leaving Susan behind, I'm sure for fans, kind of came completely out of nowhere. Mm. Oh, yeah. But we do get small hints throughout the story, mainly when he sees Susan with David, that mm. Susan is not truly happy or fulfilled traveling with him. She's happy with their friends and she's happy with the adventures, but we get the sense that it's not true happiness. Yeah. And he sees that she could be happy on Earth, but he knows that she would never leave him. Do I think it's appropriate he took the choice out of her hands and essentially left her with a man she barely knew? No. <laughs> However, in the context of the story, I get it. Yeah, that, that, that's the thing. It's like, I was actually just going to say that I, I, it's nice to actually see him play, like he didn't sense rights, he gets to play a grandfather because he's very protective of her and like you know you could tell like that he's like sussing David out and you can almost tell like that the way like, that David kind of flatters him it's like yo I'm asking for your granddaughter's hand can I get your permission type thing yeah and I think that's really important with him is that like while it's also flattery 
Yeah. It's also just respect. Yeah. Do you know? And he's like, okay, this man respects me. He respects my position. He respects his elders in general. And then you can see him observing them together. And so he's happy for David to take the lead because David recognizes when to defer to an elder and ask for advice. Yeah. And so it makes him feel that Susan will be safe with David. Like the, the whole like they fell in love over the course of like two days thing. It's re- it's very Romeo and Juliet, and we both have our opinions about Romeo and Juliet. Yeah, it's also very Disney. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's true. But like I said, in the context of the story, I get it. This isn't the first time we're going to see a companion fall in love over one story. So let's just yeah leave it at that. However, there is one thing for which I will never forgive him when it comes to Susan leaving. And what would that be? He left her in a devastated version of London with, with no a shoes. man she hardly knows and one freaking shoe. <laughs> At least leave the shoe behind you dope. Like, or leave out a spare set of shoes for her. Because he took the shoe, said yeah. he'd fix it and then buggered off. Yep. So she's standing there with one shoe on. Absolutely. Um, I think the last few bits of notes I have for him are, again, we get to see the great spectrum of William Hartnell's doctor in terms of his mannerisms so like you know he's like the crotchety old man when he talks to you know he's giving out to susan over the scaffolding coming down the tardis mm-hmm. and like you know his parting thing to her is like you know you're going to get a, a jolly well get a smacked bottom which i was like oh that's it that's like a 60s granddad if there ever was <laughs> it uh portrayed on tv um but he also yeah, had, that, yeah yeah i was just gonna say the the thing you need is a smacked bottom okay yeah. that's kind of an elephant in the room when it comes to this story because and we don't usually try to jump the timeline but to be honest with doctor who the timeline is kind of fluid anyway yeah um in the modern era this line was brought back yes and fans of hartnell and hartnell's doctor were enraged in the way that it was used because mm. it was used to imply that the doctor was incredibly misogynistic that perhaps he looked down on women, that he didn't treat people very well. All things that, if you actually watched Hartnell's run, you would never believe about him. Yeah. Like, we're, was it now? This is episode 10 of the podcast. And we, how many of those stories has the Doctor had more, I suppose, in terms of good, like he's, he's deferred more to Barbara than he has yeah. Ian and in, in any of the now I know, I know that like, Susan is there as well but we've had our issues with Susan in terms of her portrayal on the show but for the majority of the shows like it's Barbara is the person that he kind of seems to be used as a, a sounding board oh yeah like he his relationship with Barbara and I've said it before is one of my favourite relationships in Who yeah because they're so adorable the thing with this line though is this line doesn't mean he's a misogynistic creep no it is a story that shows a guardian, in this case a grandfather, who is incredibly frustrated with their charge, in this case a granddaughter, who did something kind of stupid that had really bad fallout and she hurt herself. Yeah. It is no different than any other parent or guardian. I mean, how many times have you heard, and it's not always meant in earnest, it's often meant in jest, careful now or you're, or you're going to get the wooden spoon. 
Yeah, because like that—that's the thing. Like you know, because like we grew up what, like you know, we grew up in the late eighties, in late eighties, early nineties, with parents that had been growing up like in the like in the fifties and sixties. So that's the kind of upbringing we had. Like it was like we we had you know the threat of the wooden spoon or like you know the smack bottom or stuff like that. Like the way it's used here. Yeah. It's not him being this weirdo who goes around saying that he'll smack someone in the ass. It's him, sort of reminding her that, you know. How to put it? He says it because he was concerned for her. Yeah. And because what she did had a negative impact. And it's sort of the whole, hey, remember there are consequences. And that's all it was meant to be. And mm. it really upsets me that it was used in the modern era Oh, like, like to of, imply something completely different. Of all the things to take from, uh, from Hartnell's doctor to bring forth into the modern era the, the, the fact that they picked that pisses me off to no end because and like I remember no I didn't read the full article because I was just so mad and I read a lot it was uh, Stephen Moffat gave an interview about it and he had said that oh the doc, William Hartnell's doctor wasn't very progressive and Bullshit. The, yeah like to that to me it just it kind of went that you wrote the character this way to suit your um whatever way you like whatever your own way of storytelling to show like the work of the guy the doctors under your uh tenant and i I just felt like that was a huge disservice that a lot of people uh who've only ever watched new who this would have been their first proper introduction to the first doctor and this would be a very tint or tainted view of the first doctor in my opinion yeah, like we're we're both part of a Doctor Who fan group on Facebook, which is a great group, by the way. Oh yeah, absolutely. It's as like the Doctor Who Facebook group for f- people who are actually fans of the show. Yeah, which is great. It's, it's a totally positive environment where no one feels put upon, you know, to be negative all the time around here. That oh yeah, like people like people uh, like disagree with each other constantly on that thing, but it's done in a very pers- respectful manner, which is I think what kind of drew us to that Facebook group in the first place. Yeah. But someone actually posted quite recently saying that they weren't sure if they wanted to go back and watch the first Doctor's run because they'd heard that he was misogynist and sexist and racist and all this kind of thing. Yeah. And I'm so glad that everyone in the comments was like, no, that's that's not true. That's a misrepresentation of his character. So if I'm going to say this now to all of our listeners, if you haven't watched Hartnell because you did not like the dynamic or like that scene between David Bradley's first doctor, Bill and Peter Capaldi's doctor, put that completely out of your mind. That is not that character. Yeah. David Bradley is awesome. That was written badly though. Yeah. Or David Bradley was, he just feels like a natural successor to the role of the first doctor in terms of representation. And like, and I, like, um, I would be very interested to hear some of his big finish stuff, just to see how it's written, because yeah. if it's written in the vein of the Hartnell, the proper Hartnell Doctor, then like I, you know, shut up and take my money. <laughs> Whereas if it's in the kind of in the vein of Twice Upon a Time, I would be reluctant to hear it. Or, and uh, it's just, it's a shame. It's a shame. Yeah. So some other final notes on the Doctor that I have, um, because that scene understandably has side-rolled this conversation a little bit but it had to be said yeah um a few other things i love i do love i think i've mentioned this before but 
it's one of the things I love the most about the first Doctor and I will always love because it's so adorable. I love his little Yoda slash Kermit like <laughs> like the little the little like hum noises that he makes to himself. Oh, he is like his And his hmm. little giggle. It's like Yeah, oh, you're that's so it. cute. That that's it. Like his giggle and the hmm it's just oh it's it's amazing. It's brilliant. I also love that in this story we get to see him pair off with Ian. Which, as yeah. you said, that's not something that we often see. Usually it's Ian and Barbara or the Doctor and Barbara. Usually it's one of them goes with one of the girls. Yeah. So it was really nice to see the two of them together. And we got a little bit of, like, you know, science bros. Yeah. Or like <laughs> and that, stuff like that, which that was great. That MacGyver scene in the jail cell was, was brilliant. Yeah. And lastly, you know, we have another key moment for the Doctor and who he would become mm-hmm. in terms of... <clears throat> Um, the modern understanding of the Doctor and who he's become over the last nearly 60 years, which is, I never take lives only when my own is immediately threatened. Yeah. And that actually kind of, this harkens back to, do you remember in our discussion of an unearthly child, I was taken aback by when he picks up the stone to kill the wounded uh, Za. And mm. I remember commenting kind of going, that seems very, you know, harsh and very kind of cutthroat but when you go further on and you when you watch it sequentially and you come up to this point in time this statement makes uh, puts fresh light on that action because yeah. again like these guys were out to hunt down and kill the doctor and at that stage it, his main focus was on his granddaughter as opposed to two people that would become incredibly dear friends to him so it's amazing how stuff that happens later on can really uh, make you reassess your opinion of the stuff that happened before. Yeah. And so if we move on from there onto our companions, do we want to do Susan last? I think we should. I think we should. Okay. So I mentioned science bros. Um, How about we do Ian next? Uh, Absolutely. Do you want to take uh, Ian with us to start off with? Cool. Um, The first note I have, (laughs) because we've always called Ian the action man, right? It's kind of become a bit of a running joke now. Um. And we discussed in the sense rights how sometimes that's kind of all Ian can do. Mm-hmm. But the note I had here first was, Ian, just because you can kick in a door does not mean that you should kick <laughs> in a door. Or you will end up, end up dangling from the side of a building. Ian yeah. does spend a lot of the story separated from the others. And they all kind of do. They kind of split out uh, quite early on. But what we see with that is he is perfectly capable of surviving on his own. Mm. You know, he was in a bomb that was being set through this drilled hole to the core of the planet. And he quite quickly managed to scupper it and get out. And then he also had the wherewithal to keep the little door thing open which ended up blocking it from going to the center of the earth anyway he's very confident he's very skilled in his own ability you kind of get the sense that if ian was ever stranded on a planet for a prolonged period of time by himself mm. you know that when you come back he'd still be there <laughs> yeah uh, no, he'd be I... fine yeah, absolutely. I, I love watching the Ian Solo adventures because like, it's always really interesting to see him react to like, I made the comment before that whenever there's a pressure situation and there's other people there, Ian immediately takes on like a shielding role to be like the um, the guardian of everyone else in the group. 
and he needs to be like this affable uh, we can take care of this sort of thing so seeing him when he's by himself watching the shift in his um, attitude it's always amazing because like sometimes it's very fearful like we saw in the Aztecs um, whereas this one it's like he does like uh, pair up with random people and he do, like he just again looks after him but at the same time he's also solo so he's also going to looking after himself if that makes sense one thing that I think is amazing is the fact that Ian is now actually indestructible yeah how how like what, like, what was it? like it looked to be like an easily a hundred foot dropped on that mine shaft with no padding or water at the bottom of it I'm sorry man but your legs are broken and driven up into your spine <laughs> Ian Chesterton is made of rubber yes uh <laughs> No, the one thing, um, it was, I have a feeling that if Ian was like dropped in some sort of a war zone, he'd be like, he'd be, he'd be grand because this was very World War Two spy in the countryside type thing. Yeah. But one thing I've kind of put down is um, he's very suave and he's very kind of confident in how he deals with people in terms of like, you know, the way he does with like the, the black marketeer, Ashton. But one thing that I do love about Ian is that when he is by himself, he has a lot of ah, shite moments. <laughs> <laughs> he really does. Yeah. Actually, I, I've kind of found that when Ian is by himself, it's yeah. kind of like a comedy of errors. Yeah. There's always something that goes wrong <laughs> when he wants to do something. I have a question. When Ian is by himself, do you like just think of me by my, like, stranded by myself in a city somewhere? Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah, I do. Or like you left at home by yourself. Well, that, that's that's a completely different scenario. I just kind of dance around to, you know, music all night and play video games, so it's fine. <laughs> I'm perfectly safe in my little cocoon. <laughs> so, moving on, we have Barbara. Um, I'll be honest, I was a bit concerned about Barbara when the first thing the Resistance asks her is if she could cook. Yeah. And I was like, <laughs> hell no. You're not, you're not putting her uh, in the stereotypical role. And, like, she doesn't fight it. She's like, yeah, I can cook. Yeah, sure, I'll help out, whatever. But I was glad that we do get to see her get stuck in with everyone else in the attack on the saucer. She's throwing bombs. Yeah. And then she rammed a load of Daleks with a truck. Like, I was like, that is like, do, do you know what that reminded me of? Ripley in Aliens. Yeah. When, she just plows into the Xenomorphs. It was like, that was absolutely amazing. And to, to, the, cinema, to, to the directors and the cinematographers of this particular story, like, that moment oh the capturing of it is just beautiful what I had to compare it to as well and we're going to jump the timeline again sorry yeah. is in Stolen Earth yes so the New Who season 4 series 4 closer yeah we have a very similar standoff between Sarah Jane and her Nissan Figaro yeah. and a set of Daleks <laughs> and as much as I love Sarah Jane yeah Sarah Jane gives up and stops. Yes. Barbara doesn't. No, there is a big difference between a truck and, and a San Yeah. However, it says something about Barbara that she just said, fuck it, and just ploughed through them. Uh, it was absolutely uh, brilliant. One thing I love about... Uh, the, the One thing I love about the, the days of Barbara and Ian is that like sometimes they're dressed in period appropriate clothing but see this time because they had been told that they were back in London they immediately went on and wore their teacher clothes again so you hear you have someone that's just coming from like um what was it like the her like her history classes and immediately just gets into a truck and just plows into these psychotic armored aliens 
or like watching her try to run through London pushing the freaking wheelchair in a pencil skirt oh, and you're like that. okay this is when your outfit from the Daleks those like yeah leggings that the Thals gave her I was like, this this is when you need those yeah <laughs> this is leggings weather not pencil skirt weather but also as well she is the master of bullshit in this story oh it's brilliant I loved it but I, I, I really want to see now a horde of Native Americans like attacking Daleks while being supported by uh, like Hannibal and his army of elephant riders. It'd be amazing. Oh, it's so good. Like, because you can tell that she says it first and she's kind of like, did they buy it? And then she just goes on a roll. And she's like, yes, and in the second wave, Hannibal will be coming over the Alps. And I'm like, oh my God, it's so brilliant. Also, she's, do you think... I loved that bit. She was so fantastic. Do you think she and the doctor like have like competitions to see who can be- do the best Dalek impression? <laughs> <laughs> I think so. I love how like it, this is going to sound really bad, right? But mm. it is that thing that a lot of kids did when they were younger yeah. in the eighties and nineties, which is completely inappropriate. Yeah. But like when you were playing like cowboys yeah. and Indians, cowboys and Indians, you're doing and you just sort of like put your hand over your mouth. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> and like tap it to try and distort your voice. Uh, no, that was the other thing. Like her ability to play the Daleks and just to get them to buy into what she was saying, and then her Dalek voice was fantastic. The bit that I love as well is that at the very end, like this was Barbara being Barbara. You know, we got to see all of her strengths, um, but at the end, we also see her show her emotional intelligence and her ability to read the room as she practically has to drag Ian away (laughs) from as far as she knows Susan and David's goodbye yeah and the fact that like she's like okay we're gonna go and then she goes to walk away and he stays and she's like oh for fuck's sake come with me yeah was it you know like typical men completely blind to the (laughs) to the desires and emotions of women uh, one thing I will say about Barbara as well, like this, I think my last note on her is that, dear God, like she, the woman has the patience of a saint. Like you've got Jenny, who is the actual resistance member here, is like, ah, like let's pack it in. At which point Barbara's just like, I was half expecting her like to backhand her, just kind of going, pull yourself together, woman. Um, I suppose that actually leads us quite nicely into our resistance members. I think if we each give like one or two sentences on each of them, and then we can yeah. loop back around to Susan again. Yeah, absolutely. So going down through, we have Tyler. So I put him down as the jaded fighter who can't attach himself to anything and is unsure how to act in victory. It's like the whole, my only purpose was fighting. Now that the fight is done, what do I do? Yeah, I put down that he's a realist. He's ready to get stuck in and fight. Like, he's no coward, but he can also see the writing on the wall. I think he actually would have been a very effective leader um, in place of Dortmund. I think he kind of was that sort of secondary, like, back role. I have a feeling like that, Dortmund is like probably has a university education and like it's kind of a trope for like the the person with the the as opposed to being like a strategist because they have like a they have all these higher diplomas and stuff like that that usually they fall into the leadership role for which they're not suited I have a feeling that that might have been the case here yeah so my notes on Dortmund and that actually leads us quite nicely into him was that he's an intelligent man who knows he's intelligent and therefore assumes he's always right yeah. And this type of personality can make for bad leadership, mm-hmm. as was arguably the case with the attack on the saucer. I mean, they hadn't tested those bombs at all. 
Yeah. And they lost so many people. Hmm. In the end, though, he does sacrifice himself for the girls, and so you can't be too mad at him. Yeah. Um, but like you said, he's that guy who, you know, like you see it in, you know, war movies and TV shows, you know, like he was the guy who went to the officer, like he went to the academy, you know, he's an yeah. officer. Yeah. Whereas it's the sergeant is actually the one who knows what's going on. Yeah. Another, I suppose, alien reference would be um, the lieutenant from Aliens, whose name is, oh, I can't remember him here now, but clearly Hicks was the, the more competent one yeah exactly but the one thing about Dorman as well is like he because of his bad leadership uh, style he's that type of guy that is so convinced that the his way is the only way that would succeed he can't see all the other potential possibilities that are there that are probably better and yeah like again like how and he, he follows that path to essentially the cost of his own life next we have Jenny <laughs> I'll tell you the first things I wrote down about Jenny yeah Gowl and bitch. That was literally the first two words I wrote down. She is such a horrible individual at the beginning. Oh, she's like that. She like she's clearly with the resistance because they can provide her with food and shelter, and like she and and because she's there, she like you know you know tow the party line. But when it comes when push comes to shove, like you know it's just crumples, you know. Yeah, like in fairness, they do explain it. I mean, she has seen the entire human population decimated you know that just doesn't make me like her anymore yeah the one thing i will say is that she does become nicer after barbara's ram of the daleks with the truck i think it's her seeing that we can take them out using even something as simple as a truck as a five-ton lorry (laughs) yeah do you know so i think she's incredibly annoying I think Barbara would have been better off without her. And I think I don't think the story would have had any negative impact if she hadn't been there. Hmm. No offense to the actress who played her; like it's not her fault. It's just no, the way it was written. The, I think we could have taken Jenny out of the story, and it would have been exactly the same. But like we've kind of made the comparison like to war movies, like where imagine if this was a squad, like you've got the the incompetent leader, you've got the very competent second in command, you've got the I won't call her quite a coward, but you've got the cowardly person. And yeah. I suppose that brings us on to the next person now, which would be David. Yeah, so my notes on David. <laughs> I've written down that he's a Disney prince. Yeah. Um, he's kind-hearted. He's willing to get stuck in. He's also willing to have some fun. Like yeah. attacking Susan with a fish. Mm-hmm. He does not take the easy path. He refuses to take the easy path. And he will always stand up for what is right. Yeah. And also in the Disney Prince trope, he falls in love very quickly. He does. And I also kind of think that Dave is the type of guy that I imagine Tyler and people like him, the reason, some of the, part of the reason that they fight is so that people like David don't have to. Yeah. But I also get the feeling that maybe Tyler was like David at one point. Yeah. Yeah, no, that, I suppose, yeah, Tyler, like, like clearly Tyler lost a lot of people that were close to him. So we spoke about David and his kind-hearted nature and the fact that he falls in love very quickly. So let's loop back around to Susan. Yeah. Uh, I'll take the lead on this one. So again, I suppose for me, this was another... I think this was a really good Susan story. And yeah. it's unfortunate that it comes at... Sorry, it's unfortunate that it comes at the end of her tenure. 
and she's you know had a a real roller coaster in terms of her development we've seen some stories where she's pretty much on the sidelines we've seen some stories where she's at the forefront and we've seen stories in the middle but never with a really good consistency and i really did enjoy her with this one because some really great acting from caroline ford where the divided loyalties i yeah i want between like i want to be with my grandfather in the house i want to be with ian and barbara but i want a home and i want to be able to kind of wake up in the same place every morning type thing yeah it, it's it's the one thing with her, right? So we've had her mention in previous stories how she thinks of her home. Yeah. But I never got the sense that she was heartsick for somewhere to call home. I always read it that her home was the TARDIS and she loved the adventure and that type of thing. So I didn't really buy that. Um, not 100%. I bought it in this episode, Do you know, like mm. in this story grows and develops that way as she gets to know David and she sees his convictions and his willingness to fight for his home. I get it in this story how it would develop but I didn't see it that much in previous stories. She mentioned she kind of mentions that she misses her home but like not that she doesn't feel at home in the TARDIS if that makes sense. I, I think that, yeah no because like I, I have it in my notes here that like the whole concept of her being homesick would have been very interesting if it had started here and then went on for another few stories. Or maybe even, even with the Sensorites, where she first talks of uh, planet, unnamed planet soon to be called Gallifrey, that, you know, she, that's, her, that's her first moment where she can be homesick. So if they had kind of touched upon it more and more, like in Planet of the Giants, sorry, in Rain or Planet of the Giants, and then have it come full circle here, it probably would have been better. Yeah. Now, in saying that, I completely agree with you. She was very strong in the story. Again, mm. we've sort of seen... This is one thing that they did develop quite well. We kind of saw it a bit in Marco Polo. We saw it a bit in um, the Aztecs. We saw it in the Sensorites. Her empowerment and ability to speak for herself and mm-hmm. expressing her own thoughts and her own ideas. Like when, when they're like, okay, Barbara can cook. What can you do? She's like, I eat. Yeah. <laughs> Later, we find out when the doctor is kind of like promoting her to David, which is a little bit weird. Um, we find out that she can actually cook quite well, apparently, to the yeah. point where the doctor says, "Oh no, Susan can cook." Yeah, but she's like, she read that straight away. She's like, "I'm not being your cook, bugger off." Yeah. Um, and she also like she speaks her mind to the doctor. It's the second time that we've seen her in a big way. Obviously, she stood up to him, you know, with the whole Ian and Barbara thing, but that was a bit more um, emotional and, uh, you know, pleading and stuff like that. But here, kind of like in the sense rights, she's presenting her case. Yeah. And she's standing up to him and she's behaving as an adult, which we don't always get from her. No. And again, like it's like the the frustration of the story is like that we get to see all this amazing stuff about Susan, which she had always had this capacity for and potential, and it just comes at the end, and it's yeah. it's frustrating. Yeah, I think the whole the whole David thing, like I said, it seems a bit rushed them falling in love, but this is TV, and realistically, six episodes, not that rushed. We've seen in other programs, we've seen things that happen much faster. Oh, we've seen like forty two minute love affair. Yeah. And to be honest, I do genuinely think that if she had left in the TARDIS, she would have been unhappy. Mm-hmm. You know, whether her future is with David or not is potentially up for debate. But in that moment, 
she would have been very happy with him and she would have been unhappy if she left and I do agree that she never would have asked the doctor if she could stay because she thinks it's her job to take care of him yeah. he's old and Ian and Barbara aren't going to be around forever no and I think the doctor would grow to resent himself if he felt that Susan stayed just for him yeah the one thing I didn't agree with mm-hmm. is her leaving her TARDIS key behind yeah that that bothered me because even though you know at the time of filming we don't know what the future is going to bring and whether the doctor will come back it seems like a stupid thing to leave the key behind <laughs> like you like I imagine like you know a couple of years from now it's a case of Jesus Christ let me in let me in let me in yeah but um bittersweet ending for Susan um but like you said, a strong outing from Caroline Ford. Yeah, and not everyone gets to have that. We'll just like to point it out. Not every companion gets to go out on a on a positive note, or not, not even on a positive note, on actually a strong note. Yeah. So moving on, we have our villains. Mm-hmm. So we'll do the Robo Men first. I would just like to, uh, before we go into Robo Men, I would just like to yeah. make an honourable mention to the Slither, because we only get to see it for an episode, but it's it's something that's I think is incredibly creepy and terrifying in its concept because also, it's where did it come from well apparently it's it's from Scarrow I, I maybe should have pointed that out in uh, my notes but it's native to Scarrow so it's essentially the way I kind of gather it is that it's a, it's almost like in Resident Evil terms it's a biological weapon okay it's a bio it's a bioorganic uh, weapon and it's also got a bit of a kind of a Cthulhu type thing to it due to the fact that it's mostly just teeth and claws mm. but like it's like it's the way the kind of hard, it's kind of hard to describe it because it's essentially a guy wearing a lot of bin bags on top of himself. Uh, <laughs> uh, but it imagine like just a huge mound of kind of roaming flesh that is essentially a cannibalistic guard dog, and I would love to have seen it a bit more in the sort of um, again the Resident Evil thing is like is it dead this time? You know where just like it fell. Uh, uh, Ian managed to knock it off the mining cart. But maybe, like, if they had actually chased him into the mines, like a sort of, like, oh, Jesus, why won't you just die type thing? Yeah, I think it was a very underused villain. Yeah. You know, I think it would have been more interesting. Like, all I could think about was, what the fuck is that? Where yeah. did it come from? <laughs> uh, Where's it going? You know? <laughs> uh, where did he come from? Where did he go? Where did he come from? Slitter I Joe. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so yeah how about we move on to the Robomen now and get away from my horrible <laughs> yeah let, let's let's. so for the Robomen I'll be honest I wasn't impressed um, I get the idea they were going for but I think the acting was meh at best and I didn't really find them threatening or imposing in mm. any way shape or form to be honest um I kind of I will disagree a small bit with you, okay. In terms of, I think there's something very unsettling about the concept, the, the concept of the Robomen in the way that we 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 found out about the Robomen from the Resistance, and the thing that kind of really kind of unnerves me is that their only expression of free will is the desire to kill themselves. That's like whatever about their intimidation factor. That aspect of them, I think, is something that, for me, is just kind of unsettling. Yeah, no, 
I like the idea of them. All right, yeah. Sorry. I just don't think the implementation was done very well, which took me out of it. Yeah, because like I suppose that because we don't like we only get to see at one stage like where there's a one-on-one struggle with them, we don't get to see their presumable invulnerability to pain or their immunization to pain. Where it's like, you know, if they get shot once, they, they just keep coming and they need to literally be kind of battered to death. Um, the other thing I think that's kind of just a small bit sad about them is um, their final order is essentially a death sentence. In terms How of... So? Your, so, like, it's... So, the like, the doctor and Barbara just told them to turn on the Daleks. And... I now Thinking back on it now, I suppose, like, that they wouldn't have had the time to try and get the Robomen free so that they could potentially reclaim them, you know, reverse the process. So maybe it was a bit of a mercy killing. I, I don't think it... No, I, I I didn't read it that way. Okay. So the final order, and this is the final order you will ever receive. Yeah. I think the way that was phrased was meant to be a freeing phrase, first of all. Um, do this final thing and then you're done hmm. with being a slave. But also, when you look at those scenes when they're coming out of the mineshaft, yeah, the Robomen, who had previously been quite robotic, as the name implies, yeah. they're running with everyone else. Do you know? Um, yeah. I, you know, they're not dead. They're not dying. I mean, I'm sure some of them did die taking out the Daleks. That's true. Yeah. Um, but they also weren't fighting alone because the Resistance members also got stuck in with them. Mm. Um, if they had been left to fight them by themselves I would have been like yeah that's a bit much for me though I don't think we didn't have the time in the story for the doctor to go through the reclaiming but I always imagined the resistance was going to do that Yeah, I suppose they were going to take off the collars and the headset thingy and try and bring them back because we do see that they do retain memory Yeah, because Larry's brother Philip, Recon- yeah, as he recognizes him. recognizes him as he dies. I suppose maybe I just read the final order wrong, where like, because he said this is the last order you'll ever receive. So in my head, that was once the Daleks are destroyed, the Robomen just kind of stand around and like stay stationary. This whole thing of like, this is the last order you've ever received. Your purpose is to receive orders. So it just kind of puts you, makes you motionless. But again, that yeah. was just my my reading into it. So. Yeah, it's interesting though that we we both took away something completely different from that same scene. Yeah, but like yeah, again, like but that's the whole kind of purpose of this podcast as well, like is to kind of discuss this stuff and sometimes like, like you and me, like not like honestly, what we agree like ninety five percent of the time on stuff. Yeah, it's always fun <laughs> to come across the five percent. <laughs> yeah, so we don't agree necessarily on the Robomen. Um, what did you think of the Daleks? Right. So interesting and in, interestingly enough, um. I didn't find them as intimidating this time around as their first appearance. Um, the one thing that I do find is like the, the one thing I thought that was kind of cool was the fact that their technology is just all over the place in terms of we're now able to create like this weird motion powered disc where we can get anywhere. We can also emerge from the water, which was absolutely fucking terrifying. Because um, like that, that was a really really cool scene, and I would love to know if, uh, when New Who came back, like when it started, like the res- the reemergence of the Daleks was kind of spoiled by the title of the episode being called Dalek, and it also had a next time component. 
but when Doctor Who was first airing, there was the the Dalek invasion of Earth is just a core title given to all six episodes. Each episode had its own individual uh, title. So I'd love to know what the marketing for it was like, say, like in the Radio Times. Was there any reference given to Daleks making a comeback? Because I'd love to know if that was a genuine shock on people's parts to see it rising from the water. Yeah, I think that would have been really interesting. For me, I think this is again where we have slightly differing opinions. Um, yeah. I think this is the great use of the Daleks in this story. I think what I tried to do, what I try to do all the time when I'm watching this, it doesn't always work. What I've tried to do is I try to put the modern stuff out of my mind. Yeah. And the stuff I've already seen mm. out of my mind. So going from Dalek, or from the Daleks rather, when they couldn't leave the city and they were taken out by essentially a rug on the yeah. floor. <laughs> 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 to see them zooming around London. Mm. That that for me ups the fear factor for them the whole idea of them being submersible like that the casing is submersible and the being inside will survive that is scary and it rising up out of the water is completely scary but for me i thought it was a really good use of them and i think it really upped the fear factor like if you imagine you're back in the 60s it's one thing to see these types of aliens on an alien planet but they were in London. They were going around known London landmarks. Yeah. And it was an invasion of Earth. They are the masters of Earth. And I thought it was really good. The one thing I did find weird. Their plan. Bit odd. Well, we, we've... Okay, we've seen Star Trek. And I, we're like, we're like oh, I'm going to make this a that Star Trek ripped off certain things. So how about another Star franchise? Why not... Like they've essentially turned their plan is to turn Earth into a Death Star. True. Minus minus the big power laser. It's 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 a they're turning it into a mobile fortress. Yeah, but like we only get this explanation towards the end. Yeah. And it just seems a bit weird. Um, I do wonder though, um, mm. and I didn't see it anywhere when I was doing my research, but maybe if I researched again, stolen Earth in Journey's End. Yeah. Is that idea of when the Daleks first invaded Earth on the show, the idea was to essentially hijack the Earth and fly it somewhere else. Mm. Is that where Russell T. Davies got the idea for the Stolen Earth storyline at the end of Series 4? Potentially, yeah. What it was like, one planet won't be enough. We need to up it by 27 times. Yeah. So I think, I think it's interesting that in our read of the villains... Um, we're kind of on opposite sides of the coin. Yeah, yeah, because like I, I think because see, when the Daleks are by themselves as like the primary villain, like I, th- when when there's something that's there as in the supporting nature, so in this case the Roboman, I think it might take away for me anyway the overall intimidation factor of the Daleks because they've now got lackeys to do their stuff, um, and like don't get me wrong, like the the sequences, like the the battle scene at the uh the processing center i loved i thought it was great it was pure and utter chaos and it was so well done and the scene of there's a really good uh scene in this where you see three daleks going across i think is it the thames bridge 
Like yeah. the one that's near uh, yeah. I went to London and I demanded that my wife take a picture of me on that bridge, like facing Big Ben. <laughs> so like I was uh kind of going, This is the closest I'll ever get to being a Dalek. Um <laughs> So though like those sequences I do quite like. But I think for me, whenever the the, the Daleks have lackeys or uh, servants that could kind of do the majority of their work for them, it just takes away from the, the Daleks for me a small bit. Yeah, whereas for me, I would see them using humans as slaves hmm. increases my fear factor of them. So it's just two reads of the same, the same yeah. experience. So that's another awesome character discussion, Trish. Uh, so how about we wrap it up with our overall feelings on the story? Sure. So for me, I think this was a very strong story. One thing I didn't mention before now is the special effects are a little bit rough. Um, there's some really good use of models. Mm. There's some really bad use of models by a modern perspective. Looking at you, flying saucers. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if you noticed this, but when the TARDIS landed, the windows were already knocked in on the front of it. Yes, I did notice that. Yeah. However, all of that takes nothing away from the story. It's still a really strong story. And when you're watching it, it's not like sometimes you're watching a story and the special effects being a bit weird, it just pulls you out of it. Mm. That doesn't happen here. It's such an amazing story. The farewell at the end is iconic when it comes to Doctor Who. It's one of the bits that's often, you know, when they're doing like showing clips of like the best moments from the Doctors and stuff like that, they often use that clip for Hartnell's Doctor. And while I'm not a big fan of characters being written off by marriage, Mm. that's a kind of... This is not a nice way to, to get yeah. rid of a female character or a male character for that matter. Yeah. Um, I do think it was done very well here. Hmm. Do you know it was? It didn't come out of nowhere. We did get to see them flirting. David and Susan had a lot of time by themselves. Because like, to get to I, know each other, absolutely. and I like that. And like I suppose as well, like that. If you think about it, this could potentially have been the the grounds to lay a Doctor Who spinoff, Susan's life in the twenty second century. Yeah, and like I said, we've mentioned some of the big finish stuff, and I, you know, I'm sorry to admit I haven't gone through the entire big finish catalogue, um, but I do know that there is mention of Susan again in big finish, and they do look into her life after um, the Doctor leaves. Um, there's also some novels that do it as well. Um, there's kind of two different reads on what happens, but you know. I think even now, like, can you imagine a spin-off of that now? Hmm. You know, knowing what we know about Gallifreyans now, which we didn't know back then. Yes. Like, um, I think it's, I think it's one of the novels I read it in, on the TARDIS wiki. I think, um, it's either one of the novels or it's in a Big Finish production of Camberwich, but they make the point that like when David is in his fifties, Susan still looks eighteen. Yeah. And she has to try and artificially make herself look older. And in that particular story, and I've forgotten the name of it, um, he was considering divorcing her 
so that she wouldn't have to watch him fade away. Yeah. And I think, I mean, imagine if we had that story like visually now. I really need to look up what the story actually was because I'd be really interested in either reading slash listening to it. But yeah. I think their relationship, while rushed, it worked for me. The I only thing I, for me, sorry, go on. No, no, I was, I completely agree with you. Is that like, it, for some reason, watching it, it just didn't like, it never felt shoehorned. Like it just no. felt natural. Yeah. The only thing for me, and you and I will disagree on this. The only thing for me that held the story back was the Robomen. Like I said, I get the concept. But I didn't buy the implementation. And any time they were on screen, that was what took me out of it. It wasn't the weird, you know, cheap special effects or anything like that. It was kind of the acting. And I I just didn't buy them. Maybe if they'd been given slightly different direction, I would have bought it a bit more. But I didn't buy it. But overall, I give the story a 4.5 out of 5. I thought it was great. So I'm there with you with the 4.5. And again, my points are also for the <laughs> the inclusion of the Robo-Men uh, in terms of... Now, again, I don't know whether I'm kind of uh, colouring this with a, a very famous line from a much later incarnation of the Doctor, um, whereby numbers mean nothing to Daleks in terms of their egotistical superiority complex. Mm-hmm. So I thought uh, that... In, like having a like having a group of servitors whereby the Daleks are they feel like they're superior that their numbers shouldn't really matter into it. I think that that whole philosophy and that uh, concept that's what took the four point five took it down to a four point five for me. But I agree with you about everything else that you said in terms of the really good stuff from the story. Um, I really enjoyed watching it because it felt I was like watching some sort of a World War Two esque story whereby you've got a resistance movement trying to fight against like an oppressor but one thing that i did find kind of interesting was the concept that not all the survivors are on the same page yeah and some franchises do that i think more so in the kind of in the later years like so like like late 90s early 2000s the whole thing of survivors having their own agendas and not supporting each other um but it's like more of a kind of prevalent thing whereas like back in like the, the 70s and 80s you would usually get the thing of all survivors on a planet are all unified in their desire to get rid of the oppressor uh which isn't the case here as tyler says that not all survivors um are altruistic so i thought yeah. that was pretty cool um i love the doctor's speech at the end and the acting by caroline ford by by everyone is great in this and I think that for as as I said earlier on, a sign off to a character is rarely as strong as this. Yeah, I completely agree with you. The one thing as well, and I, I forgot to put it in my notes where I didn't mention it. I think when I was making the point about the special effects, yeah, the special effects do not take away from the fact that this is perhaps the biggest story Doctor Who has ever do- ever done, and. Oh, yeah. Like the location filming, like you see them running across bridges, you know, it's the scale of it Mm. was fantastic to watch. It's like you're watching a big budget movie. I grew up watching like the Japanese like Kaiju Godzilla movies where they Mm. use toy army trucks to represent like the scale of stuff. So like when it comes to other shows doing that, I got no problem with it at all. In fact, yeah. I kind of, in fact, I kind of wondered: Do my brothers have those particular army trucks? 
Yeah, but I think like, you know, if the special effects had been even a modicum better, this could have very easily been a movie. Yeah. And Which that's... later they made it into a movie. Yes. But um like even if it's even if they were to to cut, to cut this story into like say what does it come out to in terms of runtime? It's like six twenty-five minute episodes, so you're looking at yeah. what? Seventy-five, like um, just over two and a half hours. Yeah. Like if like you can cut out some of the bits into this to make a nice, good two-hour movie, and yeah, if you updated it, the special effects a small bit, then absolutely, this is a for me. It's a money maker. I think it's a great movie, yeah, and it's, it's a great story that would turn lend itself to a great movie. Definitely, definitely. So, guys, this week we actually have a surprise for our listeners, and it's a special bonus episode of Time Travelling Team. That's right. On Wednesday, we'll be releasing our first Ramblings in the TARDIS. This is a more casual, less structured show where we'll be chatting about our thoughts on Susan specifically, but also some more general topics. Uh, so don't forget to tune in uh, for this look back on the Doctor's first companion that left the show, and we hope that he will join in the conversation with us. Until next time, guys. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. <laughs>